Good. I want to thank you to Edward for working really hard this week to make sure our building is cool this morning. And thank you, Edward, and all so many things that Edward does in the church here. We are so grateful for this man and thankful for him. And I, love, I know he's loving me doing this because he doesn't like to call attention to himself, but I'll do it anyway. So uh, good to have everyone. One a quick reminder that this Tuesday is primary day uh, for a lot of areas here in Virginia, and we are praying for uh, Kim Gray, who is running for city council, and we're praying also for, where's Jackie at? There you are. Jackie Gonzalez. running out of the 4th District for Congress. So we're praying for you, honey. All those for Jackie's people will come out and vote and support you and excited about that. So uh, this is a real special day. Um, like Rifle said, that this will be uh, our last uh, day that we would have a second service. Uh, actually, the second services have been going on very well. But um, as we got into summertime, which usually happens, people vacation, a lot of students are gone, and it affects that. And so even when we started our second service back, way back in March, we figured probably we would, we would take a break during the summertime for that anyway. But uh, it has been great. We've been, new people have been coming out. And, and so, but we feel like during the summer, it will provide a great break for our worship team. And didn't our worship team do great this morning, I tell you? Awesome. Thank you, team. I was looking for Seth. Where's Seth at? Oh, you're all waiting in the back, buddy. Okay. All right, all right. And Danielle, of course, and others that have been a part of it. And so, um, great. We are very, very excited this morning to have a gentleman with us, Dr. Dan Juster. And his wife, Patricia, or Patty, or I don't know which one she prefers the most, but we, we are so grateful to have both of them with us. Uh, Dr. Dan has been involved in the Jewish Messianic movement for many years since 1972. Is that right, Dan? And has been really a kind of a father in that whole movement, what God's doing, and it's amazing, and... Uh, He's a, he's an author of many books. We have a book table set up this morning. I'm sure he'll tell you more about some of the books that he may have available. But we will have someone after the service uh, manning the books. And uh, we do not have a credit card type system. So either cash or check or you come back this afternoon and, uh, and pick up a book and bring a check with you or whatever. It would be great. So, uh, But I want to ask Doug. McMurray to come up here. Doug is a good friend of uh, uh, Dr. Dan, and uh, it really was Doug that that approached me, recommended, said, "Listen, we really need to have this man in and be a part of of, uh, of our church." And it's the first time we've ever had Dan to be with us, but we're really excited to have him. So I'm going to let Doug to formally introduce him. Amen. Good. Thank you. And uh, especially today, it's an honor to have this man here because today, Shavuot, one of the three great uh, days on the Jewish calendar, 
And um, of all the leaders in the Messianic Jewish world, Dan Juster is the guy who stands up and says, we have got to have the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We have to have the full equipping of the Holy Spirit if we're going to be effective ministering in the name of Yeshua. And so <laughs> it's just amazing that you're here among us today. And um, so I'm not going to say too much more except to give a commercial. If you have only so much money and you look at all those books out there and you say, which one? I, I, I really should buy one of these, but which one do I get? Get this one. <laughs> this is the one. Israel, the church, in the last days that will change your whole idea of the future. And, uh, you know, it's turned my world upside down. I mean, being around these guys at Tikkun has turned my world upside down. And getting to know these two people has been one of the richest experiences of my life. So maybe that's enough to say. Can I say one more thing? Sure okay, I just want to let everyone know that, as usual, we'll be receiving a love offering for Dan and uh, at the end of the service, and both services, this service and our 4 o'clock service, too. So I uh, just want you to be aware of that. Well, I am so pleased to be with you, and I feel at home here, because when I looked at your ministries... And what you do, I said, those are the kind of ministries that I like to see in a church. So I'm delighted. And um, I'll tell you, it's interesting that Doug picked out the same book that I picked out to highlight Israel, the church in the last days. Uh, but I picked out another one, which is my most recent book that's out there called Mutual Blessing which is on the nature of God's creation, how God has arranged his creation to be an order of interdependence and mutual blessing, interdependence and mutual blessing on every level, and what this leads to in our understanding of what everlasting life will be like in the age to come. So I tried to give you a glimpse of what you're headed for in your everlasting life. And we'll talk a little bit about more because we're those who believe that uh, when the body goes in the grave, we're not there. You know, I don't, I don't allow people to say, we buried John. No, you didn't bury John. John's not there. You buried John's body. Why do we speak that way? You know, I try to bring my words into conformity with the Bible. And we have so many things that we say that are not in accord with the Scriptures. So... Just for space on the podium here, I'm going to give these books back to Doug, and he can put them on the table so that you have them. We have a sign-up card and a sign-up sheet, whichever you like. If you want to get our newsletter and the ministry newsletter of what we're doing in Israel, there's no high-pressured giving in our ministry. 
God has provided for us wonderfully. Sometimes he's provided for us because I'm too naive to realize that what I'm entering into should not be funded, but it gets funded anyway. And, uh, uh, but, but we want to inform you and allow God to speak to you. Our newsletter is informative and teaching, emphasizing the ministries in Israel. We have a different uh, connection in terms of the ministries in the United States, but we're connected to ministries in Ethiopia, Ukraine, South America, and it's amazing the extent to which God has given us um, favor and venue. Well, a little bit about myself. I was, uh, came to the Lord in the Reformed Church of America. How many have ever heard of the Reformed Church of America? Wow, we have some people who've heard of that. RCA, which is now just for informational history. By the way, how much time do I have? I should ask you. What's your normal? <coughs> oh, wow, you're free here. I'll, I'll be good. I'll try to be good. <coughs> well, the Reformed Church in America is the oldest Protestant denomination in the United States. See? How many know that? No, well, no, you all know it because I just told you. Well, one hand. How many know that? You all know that now. It came from Holland, and it was here before New York because New York, before it was New York, was New Amsterdam. And that's where the Dutch Reformed Church came from, 1600s. So we were proud of saying that, but ours was a very evangelical church. And um, I was attending there. The Lord called me to this out of a Jewegian marriage. Jewegian marriages are very good, you know, because Jewish men love blonde Scandinavians. So that's, I came from a Norwegian marriage like that and um, uh, came into that church and heard the gospel from a Baptist minister and accepted the Lord in 1960, April 1960. That's ancient history. Uh, I have a person who was there when that happened, uh, Lynn Pendleton. She's back there. She was with me in junior high school, married to Penn Pendleton, sitting with my wife. So she went through all those church experiences with us. I was the vice president of the youth group, and she was the secretary, right, of the youth group. And my cousin Lois was on that, and Larry. So we were leading the youth group, and we were very passionate. In those days, we believed in the pre-trib rapture. I was remembering a play that we did, Lynn, where we were trying to get all the youth to be ready for the pre-trib rapture so they wouldn't be left behind. Uh, I don't believe that today, but uh, that's another story. And if you believe that and I've offended you, please forgive me. But you'll read why in the book Israel, the Church in the Last Days. Now, uh, I, I was so passionate for the Lord that when I graduated from high school, I thought I was going to be a, um, a minister, and I was oriented toward becoming a Dallas theological seminary-oriented minister. That's another story, though I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in 1964. And um, I had a crisis of faith in college and became a skeptic for almost four years. Actually, there were people at Wheaton College who crossed themselves when they passed me on the walkways so that they wouldn't catch my demon of doubt. When I found that out, I felt really strange, Pastor Doug. Felt really strange. 
But, you know, I lived with that. I had wonderful professors, and I had a spiritual father, Chaplain Evan Welsh. Went on to study philosophy of religion because you can't make a living being a skeptic in any other way other than being a philosopher. A philosopher is where you can make a living being a skeptic. So I thought that was my vocational destiny. But, but when I came back to recommitment to the Lord after those four years, uh, that pastoral pull came back, and I entered from graduate school. I went to Presbyterian Seminary. Doug, Doug knows Presbyterian. And I went to the most liberal one in the United States. What one did you go to? Oh, well, I don't know. We were competitors for that. We were competitors for which was the most liberal. I had a professor of systematic theology who, you know, uh, was, co- was telling students how fortunate they were to have never believed in life after death because it's very painful to give that up if you ever believed in it. So that was my theological uh, seminary. But my, my thought was that my calling was to the Presbyterian Church because what a mission field. I could get up and I could preach to a whole audience of people, of unsaved people. That's what I thought my destiny was. And I wanted to take liberal Presbyterian churches, not conservative, because I wanted to have that opportunity to flip them. You know, you can flip a liberal church over time if you take it. We saw... Uh, Ernest uh, Lewis do this at National Presbyterian, where the presidents went. We saw Ernie Lewis do this in uh, uh, Lewis Evans in Washington and Ernie Lewis in, in Evanston at First Press. So I thought that was my calling. And I one time had the chance to preach in a Presbyterian church and to try it out. So I shared the gospel, but you've got to avoid stereotypical language because they're just going to turn off just like that. They're, they're inured against it. And so I, uh, I shared what the meaning of Jesus' death was and how we identify with his cross and the nature of God's love. And then I asked in this liberal Presbyterian church, it was Gunton Temple Presbyterian Church, and I asked how many people here would like to pray to commit their lives to Jesus. And all the hands went up, and then we prayed, and then... When I stood at the door to greet people, as you do, you know, in the Presbyterian Church in those days, shake everybody's hand. You stand at the door and shake everybody's hand. I mean, yeah, you can do that, you know. I, um, one lady came up to me and said, she said, smiling from ear to ear, she said, this was wonderful today. We've never heard anything like this in this church ever before. Now, that's, that's what you're dealing with in some of the mainline churches today. They don't even understand the gospel at all. It's pretty scary. But anyway, I, I, it didn't end up being my calling. I was just a happy Jewish Presbyterian. I knew nothing about my Jewish roots that much. I was Jewish, but, uh, you know, I wasn't raised in it. And Chaplain Welsh, the spiritual, my spiritual father at Wheaton College, was the interim pastor at the first Hebrew Christian Presbyterian Church. And I was an ordained Presbyterian, nine years in that. I even have a pension, small pension. See, I was in that for so long. And um, he thought, because my father was Jewish, 
it would be wonderful if I took this pastorate because where else was he going to get a Jewish Presbyterian? He was 68, 69, my age now. And he thought, I really want to give this up. And so I said, all right, I'll do this as a student pastor. And then I got caught up in the importance of the salvation of the Jewish people in God's plan. And once I understood that and what God was about in that, my life was redirected in a way that I never had dreamed. And you never know how things are going to work out. In those days, we had three Messianic Jewish congregations in North America, and now we're a movement in the United States, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, South America, South Africa, and I've been to all these places. You know, it's amazing that uh, being in this work eventually launched uh, my life into connection all over the world of, of churches that are committed to this. We even have the Chinese underground church now. The, the main leaders of that are relating to us and our ministry in Israel. So it's really quite a thrilling time. So, um, you know, God opens doors that you wouldn't believe, and you see yourself in these places, and you, you ask yourself, how did I ever get in here? So I didn't get to be um, a Presbyterian to preach to the frozen chosen, and, and, and I, I'm sometimes sad about it. No, I sometimes am sad because that experience in Gutton Temple, I wonder if God will ever open that before I die to, to care because I care about the Presbyterians and um, care about the Reformed and all of these things. But I wanted to share with you today some of the basic things that I came to understand that redirected my life because I was really happy at the thought of being a normal Presbyterian minister. And I became a very abnormal Messianic Jewish minister. And God will do that to you. How many know that God is not into feeding your pride and status, that he's into getting you to be effective for his kingdom? That's the main thing. And so the Lord revealed to me some things about eschatology. Which, by the way, when he started to reveal this to me, I was an eschatological skeptic. I'll just tell you the story. And then i got to just go through the, the material because I could just tell you stories. I looked at the book of Revelation like one of my members in our congregation in the early 70s who came up to me, a new believer, and she said, I read the book of Revelation last night. I stayed up all night and read it. And her eyes were like this. Even though she didn't sleep, her eyes were like this in fear. And she said, uh, I read it, the whole book. And I said, did you understand it? And she said, no, but it sure was scary. <laughs> and that's, that's how people read the book of Revelation. My view was it really is scary, but if we're really good, maybe we can avoid this whole thing. And if we're bad, it's all going to happen. So it's a warning, don't bring the world into this and, you know, get right with God so you don't have to go through this ever. So it was, I called it the, uh, the uh, contingency of the book of Revelation. You don't have to go through this. But then I came to understand it in a whole different way. And the Lord gave me an understanding. I believe he gave me an understanding. You'll have to test it out, hear my message, and read the book. That the whole issue of this age is that we as believers in Yeshua, in Jesus 
are to invest ourselves in such a way in this world that we move history to the climax of the Lord's coming. That the second coming of the Lord is not something that happens in the sweet by and by. You know that hymn? In the sweet by and by. You know, some of you are too young to ever remember these things. But it's something that happens because the church is at the right place at the right time and has moved history to the omega point where we will see the clouds part and we will see our Lord return to rule and reign forever and ever. And I uh, want to assure you that our goal is not this life. Our goal is everlasting life. I used to be kind of upset with my fundamentalist roots because I thought they were too otherworldly directed. And it's true, the way they understood eternal life was kind of this heavenly thing with a harp and a cloud, and I don't believe that. I believe our goal is the age to come, which is this earth renewed and transformed. But uh, having come to understand that, I used to think, man, we want to be of use in this world. We want to build businesses. We want to build institutions. We want to see the kingdom now. But I want to tell you, life goes fast. You young folks, I mean, you just won't believe how fast it goes. And, you know, I learned this fundamentalist ditty that said, there's only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. You know, that's absolutely true. That we're not living for this world, we're living for the age to come. And our goal is the age to come. I believe that we're supposed to demonstrate the kingdom in every sphere of life. I'm a kingdom person, but it's all partial in this life. It's a witness, and it's to move history to the climax, and we're not going to take over without the return of the Lord. You know, there are some people that teach that we're going to take over the whole world and rule it for a long time before Jesus returns. That's my favorite eschatology. Eschatology is your doctrine of the last days. You all know the word eschatology? That's the doctrine of the last days. And I've said, that's my favorite one. Because then you don't have the idea of the Lord could delay, and so we have to build families and schools and businesses and institutions. But the Lord could come soon, and then what we built won't last because he'll come soon. And you're in that tension in the New Testament. I don't like that tension. So if we were just going to take over the whole world and rule it for a long time before the Lord returned, that would be a nice, easy view. And I say to my friends who believe that, I love your view. I only have one problem with it. I can't find it in the Bible. Because the Bible teaches again and again in the prophets, in the New Covenant Scriptures, on page after page, that the return of the Lord is a cataclysmic time of upheaval. The return of the Lord is a time where the battle of good and evil come to their most intensive clash. Which, by the way, is the doctrine of classic Reformed theology and is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. I could read it to you in the Catechism. The time of trial that we will all go through just before the return of the Lord. And we don't get raptured out, folks. We're going to be here for it because it will be the time of our greatest triumph and victory. All right, in 2 Peter chapter 3.11... 
Second Peter chapter 3.11. I'm speaking today on hastening the day of his coming. Second Peter 3.11. Hastening the day of his coming. Peter says, But the day of the Lord, in verse 10, let's start with 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will melt and disintegrate, and the earth and everything done on it shall be exposed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Live your lives in holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. Looking for and hastening, that we are hastening the coming day of God. And just to summarize what we're going to get into, the scriptures tell us that we are to be an ethical people, righteous and godly, that we are to be an evangelistic people, and we are to be a passionate for the Lord people, looking and longing for his coming. I'm going to say that again. We are to be an ethical people. We are to be an evangelistic people. We are to be a passionate for Jesus people longing for the day of his coming. The quality of our lives moves history to the climax of his coming. And I believe before the Lord returns, he is going to have a church that's the best one on this earth that he's ever had. How I could believe that? I must be in some kind of delusion. Or I must be in some kind of believing the promises of God that he's going to bring us together and he's going to do an extraordinary work in bringing the church into what he wants. And I choose to believe the latter. Now, the Lord tells us in Matthew chapter 24, and you know, I'm a teacher Uh, I'm an apostolic teacher. So, uh, you know, I oversee congregations and ministries, and I teach, and I love to teach, and I could stand up here and teach you these things in detail, and we could have an eight-hour seminar, and it would be easy for me to do that, and I have to go against what's easy for me and what's hard for me to do, and that's to be brief and to give you the basics. In Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 14, we read this. This good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. He also says, by the way, in the verse before it, the one who endures to the end will be saved. But this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. Now, I want to tell you, as you study church history, and I'm a student of church history, you'll find that the gospel of the kingdom has rarely been clearly taught and preached to the world. The church has had forms of the gospel that have been partial. Sometimes they've been anemic forms of the gospel. No iron in the blood of what's preached. There is a specific understanding of what the good news of the kingdom is. And before we see the Lord return, the gospel of the kingdom 
must be preached. What is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is more than Jesus has died for your sins so that if you received him, you'll go to heaven. You know, that's part of it. But you have to receive him in the right way. The idea being taught by the hyper-grace people today, that you can, and this is not a new doctrine, it goes back to John Nelson Darby in the 19th century, that you can receive Jesus as Savior and reject him as Lord. And you'll still go to heaven. Because they have this hyper-grace idea, they don't understand that the grace you receive is God's transforming power that puts everything in your life in right order. So what is the gospel of the kingdom? In Mark chapter 1, 15, we read Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Why was it good news? What was this good news thing? It's a little bit different than the way John the Immerser preached it. Baptism means immersion, by the way. The way John the Immerser preached it. It was that in Jesus, the kingdom of God broke into this world because the kingdom of God is where the manifestation of the rule of God is in this world. And you can understand the gospel of the kingdom when you understand what Jesus said about John the Immerser. And I'm just expositing and referring uh, this one little text, but I'm referring to others. In Luke chapter 7, John the Immerser is in prison, and he heard Jesus uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He announced Jesus, and he's there in prison, and he thinks, my, this doesn't look very much like the kingdom of God to me. I'm in prison, and I don't know if he anticipated it, but he was going to soon lose his head. So he sends his emissaries to Jesus and says, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Because in Jewish thought, when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom comes, all foreign oppression will be thrown off. The exile for Israel will end. The rest of the Jewish people in the scattering will return because, you know, in the first century, most of the Jewish people were still in the scattering. And the God of Israel will be demonstrated to the nations and the nations will turn to God. Now, they believe there would be a tribulation before that, but when the Messiah comes... We're going to enter the great war and we're going to be delivered. But instead, here I am in prison. And Jesus says, go tell John what you see and hear. Because he demonstrated it right then. He said, the blind receive their sight. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised up. And then he says, blessed is he who is not offended at me. Why would they be offended at Jesus? He's doing so much good. They would be offended because as Jewish people understood it, Yeshua was not bringing the kingdom in the way that was expected. 
They were expecting the fullness of the kingdom and the destruction of all evil, which Peter was talking about in 2 Peter 3. He says that will still happen. They were believing in the end of all tyranny and oppression and the deliverance of Israel. And he wasn't bringing that yet. But he was bringing a presence of the kingdom in his life and ministry that was real. And if you attached yourself to Jesus, even before the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, today on the Jewish calendar, last month on the Christian calendar, if you attached yourself to Jesus, everything would be changed. And then he says this, an amazing text. What did you go out in the desert to see? Speaking of John. And you know the description. You've read the text. And he says, he was the greatest yet born of women till this time. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Immerser. How can that be? How can he say that John the Immerser, first of all, is greater than Moses? How can he say that he was greater than our father Abraham? How can he say that he was greater than Elijah the prophet? Because it did not have to do with being greater in terms of moral stature. And he that is least in the kingdom of God didn't have to be with when we all get to heaven. It had to do with the privilege that John had to announce Yeshua, the kingdom of God coming in him. The most privileged person in world history till that time was John the Immerser. When we get to heaven, I don't think John necessarily will have a greater reward than Abraham or Moses. And of course, we won't be in heaven long. We'll come back to earth to rule. But in the age to come, I don't think his status will be higher in terms of, you know, the great men of, of God or even of the apostles. Because they're going to sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But the privilege the greatest privilege of all of the people of the old order, the Mosaic order, which was now introducing the new covenant, a Jewish new covenant order. By the way, the new covenant order is a Jewish order. The least in the kingdom of God that now has the privilege to come now into the new covenant order in Jesus and to enter into the kingdom of God has greater privilege than John. He's greater than John. You're greater. Your privilege is greater than John's. Why? Because when you enter into the kingdom of God, you've entered into a new realm that Jesus brought, and the essence of the gospel of the kingdom is you are invited into the kingdom of God to live in and from it through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you will say yes to the invitation into the kingdom of God, he'll put everything in your life right. So the gospel of the kingdom is a, a, a message that is demonstrated with signs and wonders and transformation and power that was not known before. As wonderful as the Old Testament era was, it wasn't known before. And so Jesus brought something new, something powerful, something great, which is really the power of the age to come invaded this age. And so the gospel of the kingdom is a signs and wonders gospel. It's a gospel of transformation. It's a gospel 
where everything in your life is put right if you will submit your life to the king. That's why we have good news for people. We have good news for the homosexuals. You know, one of the biggest issues with the church is where's our power with the homosexual world? There should be thousands of them transformed through the power of Jesus. But we don't know the kind of power in the West that they largely know in the majority world. We can understand the Sermon on the Mount in this way because what Jesus is saying when he says it has been said, but I say unto you, is he's intensifying the requirement of God for those that are in the kingdom because we have more power to actually live better than was required under the Mosaic order. You can understand the beatitude this way because, and by the way, it's amazing how the church misunderstood the beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. So we say, well, we've got to take a, pov- a vow of poverty if we're going to be blessed. Blessed are those that are mourned. Oh, we've got to pray for people to have tragedies and be in mourning because, you know, they'll be com- comforted. No, what Jesus is saying, because the kingdom of God has come, those people listed in Matthew chapter 5, the poor, those that are in grief, those that are persecuted, those that are trampled upon no longer are determined by the conditions of this life, but they enter into a great reversal so that the poor are no longer determined by their poverty because Jesus now has come. And that those that are in grief are no longer determined by living out a life of grief and tragedy because Jesus has come and they're lifted out of their grief and tragedy. Whatever the circumstances are, are no match for the power and presence of Yeshua, Jesus. But that's not how we've preached the gospel. We've preached it as a mere message of going to heaven when we die, and until then, man, it's pretty mean down here. Instead of living a victorious life on the basis of the fact that we live in and from the kingdom of God, a signs and wonders gospel. This kind of gospel has to be preached in the whole world as a witness. And it's being preached in China, and it's being preached in uh, poor nations, it's being preached in Africa, it's being preached in South America. It's being preached in a way today that it hasn't been preached throughout most of church history. There have been exceptions. But this is the day of the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. So if you want Jesus to return, you've got to preach the gospel of the kingdom in all nations as a witness. In other words, evangelistic passion is a key for you. But there's a second thing here. And that is if you want to see Jesus return, you've got to embrace a passion for the salvation of the Jewish people. And that the salvation of the Jewish people is something that God wants to bring the whole church to recognize. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, 39, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
Look, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you can ask yourself the question. Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say. And he's speaking to the religious leadership. He's speaking to the corporate leadership. You know that thousands and thousands of Jewish people in the first century embraced Jesus. You know that. You know that the first church was all Jewish. You know that, right? But you know that the religious leadership corporately said no. And they sent Israel into a trajectory of world history where they were a Jesus-denying people. And this took place before the rise of anti-Semitism in the church, which greatly compounded it. But you can ask of this passage, will the Jewish people come to a place where they do call upon Jesus through their corporate leadership in Jerusalem? And you can look at this passage and say, wow, the Jewish people will have to be in Jerusalem and they'll have to have a corporate leadership of some kind that will call on Jesus and then they will see him. But is it possible that if the Jewish people don't call on Jesus to see him, neither will the rest of us in the church see him until the Jewish people call on Jesus? Now, you'd say, you know, that's a a pretty interesting interpretation. Yeah, you could get that from that text. Well, some of the Puritans got it from that text 450 years ago. The Roman Catholic Catechism gets it in the text. Right there in paragraph 674 in today's catechism. Right there. Wow. So I'm not way out in my interpretation if I agree with the Pope. But you see the same idea in Acts chapter 3. There's coming a day where this must happen. Peter is preaching to an all-Jewish audience after the day of Pentecost, Shavuot. And he says to this all-Jewish audience in Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and return so that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of relief may come from the presence of Adonai, the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Messiah, appointed for you. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things that God spoke about by long ago through the mouth of his holy prophets. Now Peter believes that we're going to see the restoration on all things on earth like God spoke by the mouth of all his holy prophets. But we're not going to see it until the Jewish people repent and turn to Jesus. So he says, repent and be converted or be returned so that your sins may be blotted out, and that he may send Jesus. Now, you know, I laugh about this, but the idea of the second coming of Jesus is contingent upon the Jewish people turning to him. And I say, Dan, this is way out interpretation again. Well, this one's in the Roman Catholic Catechism too. I know it's pretty scary. I just want to tell you, I didn't learn this from the Pope. I had it before he did. Somehow my book got to the Vatican, you know? And I don't know how it got there, but he was reading it up there in the Vatican, Pope Benedict, you know? And 
I, I really, I don't know how they came to understand that, but I do know the guy that wrote the, that part of the catechism, though. I know him personally. He's a, a monk. And it's, uh, I got to meet him, and it was really interesting. How could you have come to that? You know, and he's a godly man, speaks in tongues. It's quite, quite amazing that God got him to write all these parts of the catechism, and now they're official. So it's helpful that it's there. In Romans chapter 11, Paul puts together the two missions, the mission to the Jews and the mission to the Gentiles in a most amazing way and shows how they come together, how they swirl together and lead to the second coming. And he shows us in Romans chapter 11, this is my third point, that the church is charged with the responsibility of the salvation of the Jewish people. He says in Romans chapter 11, 11, amazingly, if I can get the page turned to the right place, I say then, did they, the Jewish people, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? May it never be. But by their false step, salvation has come to the nations to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression leads to riches for the world and their lost riches for the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, insofar as I'm an emissary to the Gentiles, I magnify or spotlight my ministry if I somehow might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first fruit is holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now here's what's going on here. Quite astonishing. Paul says the rejection of the Jewish people because of the rejection of Jesus, not total rejection, not fall beyond recovery, led to the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. And this is not a theoretical abstract teaching of Paul. It was his experience. As he went from city to city, he went first to the synagogues, you remember, and usually with one exception that I see in the book of Acts, he only got a small response from the Jewish people. He did get some response, but he got a much larger response from the Gentiles. And when he found that the synagogue was not going to accept him anymore, he said, now I'm free to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I've discharged my responsibility to you. You are the chosen people. You had to hear it first. But now that you're rejected, I can concentrate on the Gentiles. So their rejection meant reconciliation for the nations, for the Gentiles. And you see this again and again in the book of Acts. But Paul says this is a temporary thing. And the purpose of salvation going to the Gentiles is to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. So that the Jewish people are to look at these Gentiles who have accepted the Jewish Messiah King, the son of David, and to see the power of the Holy Spirit, joy, transformed life, miracles, everything that is part of the kingdom of God in them. And they begin to long for and desire what they see in the Gentiles who accepted the Messiah. To say, wait a minute, look at what those guys have. That's what we're supposed to have. 
The church very little had that in history. It's a purpose of clause. Salvation has come to the Gentiles for the purpose of making Israel jealous. And he says, their rejection has meant reconciliation of the world, but their acceptance will mean life from the dead. The conclusion of history. So he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, which includes all of the people who came from the nations into the kingdom of God. I am speaking to you. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, for your sake, I magnify my ministry. That is the work of God in our life, in our congregations. If I may provoke some of my people to jealousy and save some of them. Because Paul understands that it's not just going to happen at the end. This is the mistake of the catechism. They see the Jewish people turning to Jesus at the end in some kind of, you know, almost amazing, disconnected, from anything that's happening historically. But Paul says, we've got to see a significance some of Israel saved before all of Israel saved. I magnify my ministry if I may provoke some to jealousy and save some. And he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, meaning you're to do what I'm doing. And actually, Gentiles are more effective in doing this than Jews because we're considered traitors for accepting Yeshua. Because if you have a growing significant sum, it's going to lead eventually to the nation turning to the Lord. Now, he says in Romans eleven sixteen that the Jewish believers, which he calls the saved remnant of Israel in Romans chapter eleven five, are the first fruits that sanctify the rest of the Jewish nation. That even though the Jewish nation hasn't accepted Jesus, they're sanctified or they're still made holy by those of their numbers that have believed. And so he can say in Romans chapter 11, 25, I do not want you... Brothers and sisters, to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own eyes, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. The deliverer shall come out of Zion. He will turn on godliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the good news, their enemies for your sake are hostile. But concerning the election or chosenness, they're loved on account of the fathers. This is the final end of replacement theology that God has rejected Israel irrevocably and they've been replaced by the church. Cannot defend that. Though they are enemies, they're still chosen and elect. For the gifts and calling of God to Israel is irrevocable. What's that gift and calling? I have a book on it called The Irrevocable Calling. But it's to be a priestly witness and it's to be an instrument of the redemption of the world. And Israel still is an instrument that will be used by God for the redemption of the world. That's the only explanation of the world hatred against Israel today over the Palestinian issue. Israel's done a lot of wrong. I won't sweep it under the carpet. But the focus on Israel of the whole world shows that we're dealing with something spiritual. You understand that there are more resolutions against Israel on human rights issues 
than all of the other nations put together. Why? Such a small number of people involved in this whole thing. Nobody's really furious at China for destroying Tibet. Why? Nobody's boycotting China over it. Let's have a boycott China movement over Tibet. No. Has no traction. Because it's a spiritual issue. Because with this people, despite all our sins, it's tied up the redemption of the whole world. And the devil knows it. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now been shown mercy because of disobedience, so these have been disobedient with the result that because of the mercy shown you, they will be shown mercy. God tells us of the Jewish people that they will be grafted back into their own olive tree. And he says, he gives us our identity as believers, and I will say as Christians, as the one new man. The one new man is not the dissolving of Jewish and Gentile identities, that is from the nations, the different national identities, because God's going to preserve ethnic identities. The one new man is the marriage of Jew and Gentile, just like the marriage of male and female, which is a mutual blessing thing. And he says that the identity of the Gentile is one that has been grafted in to a Jewish olive tree because he says in 1124 they will be grafted back into their own olive tree and before the gospel went to the Gentiles the olive tree was all Jewish but now the Gentiles are grafted in and become like an expansion of Israel in the nation so you know what the church is by definition the church is those from all nations who've been joined to Israel and its destiny for the sake of the redemption of the world the church is those from all nations who've been joined to Israel and its destiny for the sake of the redemption of the world. Now, how do you get joined to Israel? You get joined because you're joined to Jesus, who is the Jewish king. You get joined to Israel because you're now one with the saved remnant of Israel in the one new man. And by becoming one with the saved remnant of Israel, you're now bonded to that nation. So Israel is part of the identity of the church. But you know what else? And boy, the Jewish people don't see this. And even Messianic Jewish people, I've got to get them to see this. I'm going to work on it for as many years as God gives me. The church should be part of the identity of Israel. Israel should see the church as their progeny and should rejoice that the church came out of her and is connected to her. And the church is the meaning of the God of Israel spread to the nations through the Jewish King Messiah, our divine Lord Jesus. Now when you get this, you realize that the church is called to a two-pronged mission. World missions and Jewish missions. It can't give its primary resources to Jewish missions. That would be imbalanced. It's got to preach the gospel of the kingdom and all the world as a witness. But the church is called to give some focus to this in its prayer and its relationship. So what are we learning today? We're learning that we are to hasten the day of the Lord's return through becoming a people that are ethical, evangelistic, 
and passionate in longing for his coming. But if we become that kind of a people, we become passionate about world missions and we become passionate about making Israel jealous and connecting to the meaning of Israel. So that's what I expand in my book and that's what it's about. I hope you're with me today in this. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the name and power of Jesus. Yeshua, who we Messianic Jews love to call him. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come now and bring conviction of the truth and to know that eventually we will see the fulfillment of the mission you gave to the church. And when it is time and that mission is complete, then the hope of our hearts will be revealed that the skies will be parted and Jesus will descend and we will be joined to him to rule and reign forever and ever. Amen and amen. All right, thank you, Dan, so much. God bless you. Let me just ask you before we leave today, we're going to be receiving a love offering here, but uh, Dan will be sharing again in our second service this afternoon. Do you know yet what you're sharing on Dan? Something different. Yes, it's part two. Part two. All right. I just want to encourage you now, as always, we love to bless those that God brings in here uh, because they're a blessing to us. Amen. And so uh, if you need to write out a check or something like that, you can make it out to Harvest Renewal Church, and then we'll direct the offering to uh, Dan's ministry, okay? So let's just take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you right now for this great opportunity to give. Father, to sow that you have blessed us, Lord God, and we are intent, determined, Father, to be used by you that we may be a blessing to others. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for this message this morning. Father, we thank you, God, for how it has stirred our hearts to see, God, uh, your purpose in this world today, your mission, Father, and how we are to be a part of that, Father. So we thank you now that we are able to give, give as you direct us to, give abundantly, Lord. Amen.